Hello everybody, welcome to the Boxing Science Podcast. This is episode 21 and today I'm riding solo. I'm doing a Q&A um, due to a few complications, a few cancellations over the last few weeks. We haven't managed to do the podcast. We had another cancellation today, so there was no way that I was going to give uh, this opportunity a, make, uh, a miss. Got everything booked in, so instead of scrapping it and waiting for another week, I've decided to answer uh, some of your training questions that I receive across uh, social media. So today we're going to be talking uh, all things strength and conditioning, nutrition, and talking a bit about business as well. So uh, before we get started, I just want to give a massive thank you to our partners, uh, Saga Fitness. Saga Fitness is specialists in blood flow restriction training, and they provide wearable technology that link up to your phone to make sure that you're performing blood flow restriction training uh, in the safest and most effective way. If you wanted to find out more about BFR training, the link is in the description for our article for all the scientific principles and benefits of BFR training, and also a link to the Sarg Fitness website where you can get your hands on the BFR cuffs for the upper and lower body, and also you can get 10% discount using the Boxing Science discount code, which is simply Boxing Science. So when I put out on social media, I received a load of questions and we're going to separate this into two episodes. This episode, we're going to be covering about strength and conditioning. And then in the second episode, we're going to get Dr. Alan Ruddock to answer all your scientific uh, questions and give you a different perspective, more on the high intensity conditioning and the sports science. So the first question that I received is, is strength and conditioning base. And this is from Adam Lusby from Scotland. Uh, if you had to focus on a boxer's strengths only or weaknesses only which one would you pick and i'm going to answer with a very typical strength conditioning coach answer of it depends but i'm going to elaborate on it so if we had gun to the head moment and we have to pick strengths or areas for improvement i'll always pick on working to somebody's strengths but in the gym you do have these uh elements of the program of either going the program is working towards somebody's strengths to make them into super strengths or working on the areas for improvement and this all depends on the individual what kind of athlete they are how old they are um what competitive level that they're at and how many weeks until competition that you've got so we've got a couple of examples of when we've just focused on strengths rather than areas for improvement uh the main one that kind of springs to mind is when we work with uh, Jamie and Gavin McDonnell. Um, they started working with us when they were about 32, 33 years old. And they're well-renowned for their fitness. They were endurance beasts. Um, I've never seen anybody as fit working over like a two-minute to four-minute period on their high-intensity interval training. Um, but with their little exposure to strength training and maybe their their body composition type they're very like kind of endurance based athletes uh, they were unable to like produce that max force that max intent uh, to get the most out of like 30 second sprints or uh, muscle buffering repeated sprint training so to give you a bit of an example um, Gavin could run for 4 minutes on 2 minutes off in the heat chamber at Sheffield University and 19 kilometers an hour. Whereas like on the 30 second max out sprints, his peak speed was around 22, 23. So he weren't able to expose his body to that level of kind of 
uh, stress and fatigue to get the most out of the 30 seconds. Even though that this was an area for improvement, we couldn't work on that and couldn't really have, we didn't really have the time as well. We were going into big title fights. Jamie was uh, defending his, his world titles and we didn't have the time to be able to work on these areas for improvement. And then we weren't going to get quick returns as well because we had to, we had to prepare them for world title fights. So we literally, we worked towards their strengths and, and wanted to transform their strengths into super strengths. Now, uh, we do kind of work on their areas for improvement, but probably work around about 10% of the program around that. But majority of the program is worked towards uh, changing their strengths in super strengths. Now, I'd, that was a very specific scenario. I would go to this with different athletes at different times. Uh, depend if the training camp's very short, we want to get some quick wins. We want to get them in the best shape possible. If they're at that world title level, we need to make sure that they're in the best shape possible. Uh, but if we have time with them, let's say I've got two athletes at the minute at the very start of their career. We've got Stephen Cairns, who's 19 years old. We've got Hopi Price, 21 years old. And we've got the time to be able to work on their areas for improvement. They've got a few years before they're into big international and, and world title fights. So we've got the time to be able to work on their areas for improvement to make them a better all-round athlete. So I hope that answers your question, Adam. Um, just a review, I'd always work towards somebody's strengths and whether I have some like more time uh, with an athlete in the short term in terms of how long their training camp is or um, if they're younger, I'd probably focus more on areas for improvement, but I'd always be more geared to transforming, transforming their strengths into super strengths. So the next question is from Samuel Leon, and he's asked, what are the common imbalances that you see in an athlete caused by boxing training over time? And what movements in prehab could you suggest to add to their routine to help combat this? So we've identified in our testing um, with the overhead squat and the single leg squat assessment is that boxers struggle with four key areas. Um, we've got hip mobility issues, and this is imbalance between left and right. We've got glute strength issues, mainly due to the hip mobility problems and also not being able to train it over uh, many years. And it's a, a, a knee dominant sport and very upright sport. And then uh, rotational mobility. And also uh, the main one, being shoulder mobility. Now, these four key areas, we need to start integrating these into a program. And the best way possible to do this is in the warm-up and have a structured warm-up every single session, whether that's strength conditioning, whether it's your high-intensity conditioning and running, whether it's your active recovery, and even for your boxing training. And at Boxing Science, we have a warm-up uh, that's on the wall in the gym that the boxers perform every single session. And the reason why they perform it every single session is because it works on these four key areas. And because they've been training for such a long time, you know, some of these boxers have been training for 10 years, maybe even longer before they start doing strength conditioning. Week on week, there's throwing thousands of punches. And it's a very anterior dominant sport. 
and a lot of high impacts, especially around the upper limb. So you need to make sure that you're having a little bit of a balancing act. So if you are doing thousands of reps and and, uh, many, many hours in the boxing gym, in one single stance, in a very anterior dominant sport, and then you're not doing much mobility work, then the imbalances are going to be even more so. So I say it's like a balancing act with your boxer, with your athlete. If you do this warm-up every single day that works on these four key areas, you're creating a little bit more of a balance. Now, um, the main area for me is shoulder mobility. We've seen in our research that over 66% of youth boxers have tight shoulders based on their overhead squat scores. And this is probably more so with uh, professional boxers because they've been doing it for a long amount of time. The training's longer and also they're punching harder as well. So they're probably um, across uh, professional boxers, I'm guessing that you're probably looking at 70 or 80% of professional boxers having uh, tight shoulders. So we need to make sure our strength and conditioning programs work around that. So we're not exposing them to high weight loads overhead or any kind of pressing activities that um, implicate the shoulder joint and also working towards a three to one push to pull ratio. So making sure that we're doing um, three reps at every one repetition for pushing. So you can do this through um, managing your rep ranges on your key lifts. So uh, mainly like let's say chest press and a prone row. We'll go like five reps on the uh, on the uh, dumbbell bench press and eight to 10 reps on the prone row. And then we'd work to do uh, another two exercises, whether that's a TRX row, TRX T-raise, uh, cable reverse fly, something like that. And then doing something like band variations, working on that posterior shoulder. So you've got around about a three to one ratio there. Uh, so these are some of the things. It's a very um, short question, but could be a long answer. So just to summarize, just make sure that you're doing your mobility warm-up every day. And if you're wanting to see this warm-up, uh, I'll leave a link in the description of this podcast and you can get the full uh, boxing science warm-up that you can start implementing into your strength conditioning sessions. Uh, making sure that you're doing some extended warm-ups, working on these four key areas, and also uh, managing your strength conditioning program around these uh, common imbalances in boxing. So next question is from somebody I know very well from my days at Sheffield University, from Jordan Webster. Go and check his Instagram out, Jordan Webster underscore coaching. And he runs a business, Adapt Strength Conditioning, and is doing fantastic educational content and training content on his Instagram page. So go and check him out. Obviously he knows boxing science and the journey quite well. So he's, he's uh, provided three very good and very detailed questions Two of them I'm going to answer them today. Uh, the other one I'm going to answer when we're doing a future episode with Alan Ruddock because I want to know what his insights are to it. But the, the first one is, as a business owner that now has their own facility, has staff members and a lot large amount of athletes, what are your current challenges? And it's made me kind of pause the podcast for a few minutes to actually have a think about what are the challenges. And... The main one is delegating tasks. Um, when I've done 
this business when I've grown boxing signs. I've had great support from Alan, but most of it has been like me every day being 100% committed to boxing science and I know everything that's going off in my head. I've got a great memory on uh, the timetable, uh, fight dates, uh, tra- like training methods and everything like that, what we need to incorporate with, with each athlete. And now that we're growing in staff and mainly that we're growing in, in the amount of athletes that we're working with is the reason why we're having to have more staff. Um, it's now getting all these thoughts in my head out to these uh, fantastic stuff that we've got. We've got Kian and we've got Tommy that are uh, fantastic help in the gym. Uh, they're getting some great experience working with these athletes and you know they're fantastic help as well. But I need to transfer kind of what I'm thinking in my head onto some sort of paper in a meeting, into some sort of structure for them to carry out the task, what needs to be done in a week. And we're always being like someone that is very fast acting, something comes to mind, I act on it quickly. Um, So, and I I know that some other people don't work like that. So I need to be a little bit more structured, a little bit more organized, having team meetings. And this is something that we're putting this week, looking at what are the important and urgent tasks, what are the important tasks and what aren't so important that if you get everything done, these are the tasks that I want you to do and just making sure that the tasks have been delegated in the right way to the right member of staff and to just make sure that everything's functioning in the right way. As well, having a meeting about the athletes, um, you know, what's coming up, what the fight date is, um, what, do they, what do they need to be working on, what have their improvements been, have they got any niggles or anything like that. So where past it, like sometimes I'm in the gym all the time Sometimes I'm away for fight week or working with another client or uh, being forced to have a day off. And um, and sometimes Kian and Tommy have to take the session for me. And sometimes the athlete will have these little niggles or that they have to work around or have a fight date coming up or uh, work to a certain load the week before. And we just need to make sure that we're communicating that all the time. So that's something that, um, is a challenge and something you need to get better at. And in terms of delegation, I think this is a, a massive um, thing for any growing business and, and coach uh, needs to master. Um, I feel that as we've grown, I've got a lot better at that. Um, like I said, I put in all the hours in, are they making any money? So I had to do all my own videos, um, all my own social media content, all the website content, all the programs sound like that guy off a little Britain now, uh, sing the theme tune and everything like that. But, um, but yeah. And when the money starts rolling in, because we put so much work in, you can feel like you just want to put that in your back pocket, go on a nice holiday, buy some new clothes, do up the house, whatever. And the main thing to do in order to grow your business is to reinvest that money into people, into your staff. So an example is what we're doing now with the podcast. I was doing this on Zoom. I would get in a microphone myself um, and instead now doing it more professional. So it looks better. We've got professional on board with, with Jamie and Epicam Productions. But also it's saving me 
loads of time. So I can just literally just leave this. Jamie can go and do all the editing and distribution. And likewise with all the video content that we do on YouTube, I used to do all that off my iPhone or I had a 4K camera. That saved me a load of time by getting Jamie on board uh, because we're, we're doing well with our online sales and people in the gym. We're able to reinvest that money into doing better content, but also saving yourself time. Likewise with the staff. So it's a big risk taking on a full-time member of staff or part-time member of staff because it's you've still got to keep paying them even if your business goes a little bit down that month or over a few months, let's say COVID hits or whatever like that. So it's very risky taking on uh, staff, but you've got to do it in order to grow your business. And we've taken on Kia, like this time last year, it was just myself in the gym, more or less every day. Now I can't imagine doing every day on my own um, because I've invested into the staff in Kian, in Tommy. They're, they are helping Boxing Science grow as a business. Um, we're doing more online content than ever and we're working with more athletes than ever, which is the most important part. And yeah, that's that's uh, they're the main challenges being able to delegate tasks, but making sure that you're investing in the right areas and, you know, you can invest in a space, you can invest in kit. But the most important thing that you can do is invest in people and that will help your business grow. The next question from Jordan is, is there anything recently you've done 180 degrees on in regards to coaching and programming? So example, something you used to think wasn't worthwhile, but now... Uh, now see the use in it. A um, few different things. And shall we start with a positive one? So something that I, I've started implementing more. And on our recovery runs, what we used to do is just say, do 30, 40 minutes, steady pace, either on the bike um, or on a treadmill and working towards that green zone. So this obviously ranges different athletes. It's around about 140 to 150 beats uh, per minute, um, a three out of 10 uh, RPE, so rate of perceived exertion. And instead of doing that now, we started to put in different recovery protocols where we're just getting a little bit more speed into them. So whether that's uh, 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off, but at a lower intensity, just to, let them stride out. Um, it's better for uh, the the running gait rather than just just plodding. Obviously, uh, less impacts on on doing a, a longer run, and also it's a little bit um, it's a little bit better for the athletes too, rather than just going on a, on a steady plod. Um, better mentally as well, um, and you're just getting a little bit more out of it. You're working on like kind of high speed running. You're building up that high speed running load. Um, especially like when you're starting to look towards doing sprint training, it's a it's a good way of exposing them to higher intensity running without fatiguing them too much. Um, let's say if we're going from four minutes on, two minutes off intervals to muscle buffering phase where we're doing 12 seconds on, 48 seconds off, they're not having that exposure to them high sprints and high impact forces. And then we're just switching them up and and changing them in a different direction. So in their recovery runs, we try and 
work up that load a little bit better. So in recovery runs, we'll do anything like four minutes on, two minutes off, uh, and then start building them up a, a little bit of a pyramid where they'll start doing 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off, but doing this around about anywhere between 15 and 18 kilometers an hour, something that's not going to challenge their heart rate as much, but still getting a little bit more out of that active recovery. Um, and then we started doing tempo runs where it's about 10 seconds on, 50 seconds off, but we're going around about 80% of their maximum speed and they're not getting out of that green zone. So they're having active recovery, they're burning calories, um, but we're getting more out of it from a programming perspective because we're able to steadily increase that load in their high speed running and being able to integrate different programs. So when we're transitioning from a certain run, a certain conditioning protocol to high speed protocol, we use active recovery runs and tempo runs as a thing to kind of bridge the gap. So that's a positive thing. That's something that I've started implementing in the program. A 180 degrees thing that I've actually taken out of the program is single leg Romanian deadlifts, especially the kettlebell and dumbbell variations. I don't mind the landmine variations, and I'll explain this a little bit uh, later on in this answer. But really, with uh, when it comes to um, single leg hip dominant exercises, uh, I feel like we get a lot more out of um, single leg hip thrust, banded hip thrust, uh, isometric hip thrust, or doing like a a long levered single leg bridge than we would do a, a single leg. Uh, Romanian deadlift uh, the reason why we create like more tension we're working the glutes a little bit better as well uh, we're working together with with the hamstrings obviously working the core as well um, and it's a hard exercise to perform it's a hard one to coach as well um, you see athletes become a little bit unbalanced uh, especially boxers because they've got a lot of imbalances between left and right Um and it's very hard to become proficient at it to be able to overload, um, to overload it to create adaptation. Um, so, if I was going to put a single leg RDL in place, I would use a landmine variation. Reason why? It's easier to balance, it's easier to load, and easier to create that adaptation. But generally, if I were going to pick out a single leg hip dominant exercise, I would pick something like. Uh, I forgot to mention lateral lunge, lateral lunge variations, um, getting out of that sagittal plane um, is important as well. So doing some sort of lateral lunge variation and then performing a single leg hip thrust, whether that's body weight, banded or isometric or long levered, working towards more hamstring bias. So yeah, another fantastic question, Jordan. And I look forward to answering your third question, which is the most physically gifted athletes that you come through on the boxing science program in terms of power, strength and fitness. And that's a great question that I want to answer with uh, Alan. So look out for that in a future episode. So the next question is a fantastic one from Farrell O'Sullivan. Do you ever struggle with getting athletes and coaches to buy in to the program? And if so, how do you combat that and get them to buy in? So this is a problem that I probably had earlier on in my career. Um, the athletes and coaches that get in contact with boxing science know the reputation, um, know the reputation of the athletes that we've we've had the honour of working with and the research that we put out there. So 
they're quite forward thinking, so they're wanting to get more. They're wanting to get involved with strength and conditioning. Reason why the message, reason why they come in for testing, is because they're wanting to find out more. And also, strength and conditioning on a whole has become much more accepted within boxing and combat sports. So I don't struggle as much now. Um, but in the past, that you got to find like kind of different ways, and this is all about integrating yourself into the sport to become more accepted in that sport. So I've worked in boxing, I've worked in golf, where strength and conditioning has been a little bit questionable. Um, well, I mean, being questioned by coaches and, and athletes. And you've just got to find a way of what what makes each individual and what kind of that them kind of athletes take. So within golf, I just went straight to the swing looking at very specific stuff with the golf coach on how they can improve their swing, but then give them very generic strength and conditioning exercises. They were wanting to basically do, improve their swing, strengthen their swing and work on their swing faults. But you could work towards them swing faults, but do a a very... um, generic exercise that fits into your strength and conditioning model rather than a typical kind of golf conditioning coach where they'd work on bands work on the swing and and making all the strength and conditioning look very golf specific um but what i'd do uh, let, let's say if they were needing to work on the thoracic rotation within their swing i'd put in a quadruple rotation and i'd talk in a language that was suited to them Now, that would be very different to boxing. But you'd look at a boxer and be like, right, this is probably what you need to work on in your your punch, like looking at your technique. These are the different things that can help that. The main kind of reflection that I have within boxing in terms of trying to create buy-in is um, once I did a seminar for uh, a load of amateur boxing coaches and I approached it, of right, I need to get these guys and and women buying into strength conditioning. So what I did was showed like kind of the levels, the phys- the athletic development levels of boxers that we've tested on the program, youth boxers, uh, amateur boxers. Like it came across as that I was attacking them, and I I, I tried my best not to. And try to like say even I was saying like that I'm not attacking boxing everything like that. But the feedback that I got was that I was attacking boxing because I was basically saying these training methods that you've been putting in place have been inadequate, and these methods that are that I'm wanting to put in place doing strength conditioning um, is a lot better. And I just needed to change my language a little bit better rather than going on the attack you know these boxing coaches they put in the time and effort and they've you know they've created champions boxing the many world champions and successful boxers and legends of the sport before strength strength conditioning got involved so how is strength conditioning so much better to improve their performance and you've got to find different ways on how to get that message across so in that presentation I shouldn't have gone on the attack too much because I was saying like basically the mobility is poor 
the force production is poor. So this is what we, um, these are the reasons why, because they've been doing circuits, they've been doing, um, they haven't been doing mobility training and everything like that. And it may might, may sound like I'm attacking it now, but this is my kind of thing of, of, of creating that buy-in of finding different ways on trying to be a little bit more positive about that message. You know, what are the implications rather than going, this is poor, whatever, saying, right, you know, this could be could be a lot better. Or maybe like say about how good boxing is as a sport, like how good they are in terms of the hand speed, in terms of the fitness, in terms of, of their, their reactive strength through uh, the foot complex, how good the footwork is. But these are the areas that we can improve, uh, can improve through structural strength and conditioning. So, yeah, it is, it is a, a long-winded answer, I'm afraid, Farrell. Um, very complicated, but the, the key things are is to make sure that you, you're integrating yourself into the sport, uh, you're building up that trust with an athlete, you're using data in a way to help support the process rather than attacking uh, previous coaches or previous training methods and that's the best way to, to create that bind and to build up that trust and to get your athlete fully bought into strength and conditioning okay the final question of this Q&A is from Darren Michaels who came onto our course uh, Ultimate Coach of Combat Sports workshop uh, just a few months ago and he's asked um, for a new strength and conditioning coach starting their journey in boxing would you what would you say are the th- top three most important pieces of equipment. So not talking about general equipment, such as like treadmills, dumbbells, kettlebells, uh, but more like towards like wearable technology uh, to get the most out of out of your program. Uh, which are the biggest bang for your bucks? Um, I am going to use this question again with Alan and we're going to be more geared towards conditioning. So an example would be heart rate monitor uh i'm going to go more strength based and the first one that i would suggest to buy or to to get and i'm coming from a perspective of a snc coach starting out and working with a low budget and when we put together the performance center we're fortunate enough to have the budget to be able to get any kit that we wanted um, some kit that we still want now, but we we got a, a fantastic range of kit. But starting out, like if we if we're just starting out on our strength conditioning journey, we l- would look to, for cheaper alternatives. But with these cheap alternatives, you have got to make sure that you're still getting the right equipment. You don't want to be wasting your money uh, or wasting your time on equipment that isn't going to give you the best kind of feedback or the best uh, or the most most valid and reliable uh, results. So the first one would be to purchase an app called MyJump2. MyJump2 is a fantastic app that can uh, help measure your jump height. This is something that we used before we got the, uh, access to the OptiJump and it gives you a, quite an accurate uh, assessment of your jump height RSI and there's a few different tools on there. You can even do load velocity profiles on there as well. It's my jump two app is only nine pounds ninety nine on the app store. It's very very easy to use, and if you are working with a lot of online clients, 
Um, remote clients, they can send in your videos. Uh, sorry, they can send in their videos and you can help assess their jump height. And also in the gym, if you haven't got access to, to any kind of kit to assess uh, jump height or force data, the MyJump app is a fantastic alternative. Um, we used it during lockdown to assess count movement jump and squat jump height. This is really important, especially when we're working with our uh, new athletes and we need to get a gauge of where they're at. I remember doing this test with uh, Lerone Richards on his first session, literally doing it in a field um, and 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 uh, taking down his, his squat jump and count movement jump height. And also you can do uh, reactive strength index as well. And we encourage all of the athletes and coaches that purchase a strength conditioning program or the Train Like Champion program from us to purchase this My Jump, Pike, uh, My Jump app to help do their uh, performance testing. Because before, we were just getting them to either do a broad jump or do a counter movement jump and try and measure kind of how high they've jumped using tape measure against the wall and maybe like using a piece of chalk or a person. So using the MyJump app for only £10 is, is a fantastic alternative, even if it's a little bit off from the OptiJump. I think it, we worked it out to be about one or two centimetres out. Um, it is still a, a very valid and reliable source to be able to see how your athlete is performing um, pre-camp and post-camp. So that's number one. Number two would be a, a linear bar transducer. Uh, so to assess velocity-based training, uh, this would be either GymAware that we use at, at Boxing Science. Well, this costs a few thousand pounds. Uh, they have a cheaper alternative with the Flex. And also there's a, a different alternative. Uh, they've got Output Sports and there is a Push Band as well. And depending on your budget, um, either one of these are fantastic. Um, they've shown to be uh, valid and, and reliable. Um, the gold standard would be GymAware, but I understand that most people wouldn't be able to afford a GymAware. So all Output Sports and uh, Push Band are great alternatives just to track your athlete, uh, track their progress, and also to create that intent when they're doing loaded jumps, when they're doing... Uh, trap bar deadlifts or doing their, their pressing exercises. Uh, we've used the push band as a, as a great tool and also it's quite versatile as well because you can use it for uh, jumps, you can use it for dumbbells, you can use it for pull-ups, which you wouldn't be able to for gym aware. I think it's about 200 to 300 pounds. So that's another great uh, investment for new strength conditioning coaches. And the third one I cannot mention our partners, Sarga Fitness, for blood flow restriction training. Uh, whether you're looking to um, work with a, a, an athlete that is coming back from an injury, whether you're looking to in, increase muscle mass, increase strength, or looking for a, a recovery method, uh, Sarga Fitness BFR cuffs are fantastic. Uh, there's a full like article, video, and they uh, talk about the... Uh, in detail uh, scientific benefits of BFR training not only for uh, boxing but for other athletes as well the link is in the description for that and if you're wanting to get your hands on some BFR cuffs 
Um, the link is in the description as well. So you can get yourself a 10% discount. So yeah, I'd say the three main things that I'd say to, to purchase in terms of technology would be um, my jump app, a linear bar transducer, whether that's a gym aware, which is high cost, but very uh, highly reliable. That's the gold standard. But then you've got output sports and the push band. And then uh, you've got uh, the Saga Fitness BFR cuffs. Okay, guys, that's the end of Boxing Science Podcast, episode 21. Thank you very much for watching, whether you're on YouTube or listening, whether you're on your podcast. I enjoy these Q&A sessions because I get to engage with other coaches and get to think about my practices, about the business, uh, reflecting on stuff that I've done in the past with different athletes and coaches. So thanks very much for uh, firing in your questions. Uh, we've got many more questions to answer. And this is going to be in a future episode where we're going to be answering the questions with Dr. Alan Ruddock. Uh, if you're not a subscriber yet to the YouTube channel, please hit the like and subscribe. And also, if you're not a subscriber to the podcast, whether that's on Apple or Spotify, please hit the subscription so you're not hit and not missing another episode. And also, uh, if you can spend 30 seconds of your time to just submit a rating and give us some feedback on the podcast, uh, it'll help us with our rankings to make sure that we still invest our time and money into uh, doing these podcasts. So thank you very much. And a big shout out to our partners, Saga Fitness. I mentioned a couple of times in this episode already. Links in the description if you want to find out more about BFR training, the benefits, and also to get your hands on the Saga Fitness BFR cuffs. Thank you very much for watching or listening, and I hope to see you on the next episode of the Boxing Science Podcast. Yeah.